everybody, and welcome to the Tech Trends Podcast, where we discuss the latest manufacturing technology research and news. Today's episode is sponsored by IMTS. Uh, rebuilding supply chain starts now. IMTS is building a knowledge warehouse to rethink, re-engage, and re-establish manufacturing and supply chain. The past few months have unre- unrevealed underlying issues with the supply chain, and it's time to discuss uh, these problems and how to move forward. Please visit imts.com slash supply chain for more information. Steve, how was your week, man? It's been a good week so far. Yeah. Um, do you want to tell the people who we are? <laughs> I completely forgot about that. I am <laughs> Benjamin okay. Moses, the director of manufacturing technology. And I'm Stephen Lamarca, the manufacturing technology analyst. Steve, I feel rusty today. I don't know why. It's we're, we're I don't know. I think it's those supply chain papers I think. that we've been working on. <laughs> we've been uh, pu- pushing those supply chain papers hard. We got a lot, we, lot of content coming We've been pushing out. for them to be complete hard, and we've been pushing <laughs> them to our, you know, our audience hard too. So it's it's been our primary focus lately. And, and plus, on top of that, since it's such an authoritative topic, I also feel like, and I've mentioned to you this uh, this to you before as well, but. Because a white paper is so formal, and I'm not typically a formal person, uh, it has totally thrown off my writing style, too, with, like, the <laughs> weekly tech reports. Right. But that's neither here nor there. Yeah, the struggle is real trying to combine the two. <laughs> and it, it's tough because I feel like uh, supply chain doesn't get the um, uh, light that it deserves. It's such a complex technology and series of organizations that... I feel like it's it's kind of tossed over the fence quite a bit. It but. is. It is. I feel like it got a little bit of a uh, a 15 minutes of fame because of the pandemic. Because Yeah. Know, I mean, kind of. It was illuminated for a while yeah. on like how important the supply chain is right. like when nothing was on the shelves at like Walmart. <laughs> and then, and then uh, you know, all the, the hype, the hype train came along yep. and was like, Look at all this stuff being additively produced, yeah. like all this PPE that we're making, that all these manufacturers are pivoting to making PPE now, now that it's so necessary. And now we've got all this PPE and it's like, okay, <laughs> supply chain can chill now. I think that was it's, a, like, it's always there. That, that's a big takeaway is additive once again, jumped in on the hype and stole it all. Right. <laughs> Uh, totally took it from generative design. One thing that one thing that uh, I have been doing more often now is going to the library, which I'm really excited to get back to. So Amelia nice. and I have been uh, heading back to the library, um, just getting a bunch of books. We've been exploring other sections of the library, too. I need to actually start exploring if their manufacturing areas uh, back up. I want to get back into there. But I'm a little sad to see that they're, they have automated receiving area for their books. Mm-hmm. that it's shut down for now. I think they run it at night, but what they're doing is they're holding all the books because of the virus for four or five days uh, right. and then processing the books. So um, I'm bummed I can't use it and um, it's not being uh, run at the time, but not seeing automated equipment idle is sad for me. Yeah. Um, well, not just sad, but it's almost offensive to us because yeah. automated equipment or any expensive equipment for that matter, just laying sitting there idle. That's wasted dollars. Yeah. You're not getting your return on the investment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's yeah. so awesome. I've got a couple of really good articles. The first one I want to kick it off with is about uh, aluminum. What do you know about ductility, Steve? Um, <laughs> I feel like I, I know a lot more about ductility than I'm leading off to right let me, now. Let me get into the article first, and then I'll, then I'll quiz you on ductility. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so uh, this paper is from Eureka Alert, and they cover a lot of uh, material science uh, topics. Uh, this research was done in St. Petersburg Polytech, Polytechnic University. Steve, they're Russian. Careful. 
Uh, they were conducting research on high-performance wire arc additive, which which I'm a really big fan of. Uh, so wire arc additive is a higher, uh, larger volumetric flow rate, so they're able to produce mm-hmm. larger structure faster. So in this case, they're putting 2.2 kilograms of material per hour, which I think is fairly high. Um, but it, it's university research. And what they're doing is they're uh, testing out this uh, wire arc additive machine, uh, and they're doing different processing. What they found out when they did some material testing after they produced the part was the ductility was three times higher than the specified standard. Which and they, is, they want that? Is that a good thing? No, it was an unexpected, uh, unexpected result. So it is a positive. So ductility... Ductility I'm, is good. Higher is better. It can be better. So let me just read you what ductility <laughs> means. It's a measure of material's ability to undergo significant plastic deformation before it breaks. So you're basically pushing gotcha. on and pushing on. It's basically the toughness of the material under tensile loading. Right. Uh, and there's a couple of ways to quantify in material properties. You've got elongation values or percent area reductions uh, through tensile testing. But in the end, it's uh, I, I'm pushing on it and it's deforming, but it hasn't broken yet. Gotcha. Right. So isn't to, to expand upon that a little bit like we see one of the, one of the densest materials that we get to talk about on a regular basis, tungsten or even tungsten carbide. Sure. Carbide, for example, not ductile at all. Yeah. It's incredibly strong, incredibly heavy, but it doesn't bend or dent. It straight up breaks and shatters. Yeah, that's right. So if you look at uh, the old stress-strain curves, you have your um, yield strength. So basically you can stress it up to the yield strength and it won't deform. It'll just move back and forth between that shape. But from gotcha. between yield and ultimate, well, ultimate is where it completely breaks. You have that plastic deformation phase. And some materials are shorter, but they have a really high uh, uh, elastic strength. So something like um, uh, a tungsten or ceramics, uh, they're considered more brittle because of the ductility so low, but they can handle a ton of ton of uh, stress in the beginning, but then it shatters, right? right? So in this case, they don't mention the yield strength. So the yield strength could be really, really poor, but the ductility is better. Um, So that was a really interesting article that by accident, what they're actually the way that they found out they had this uh, uh, property, and what they're going to do in the next test is uh, the dependency of material properties to the rate, uh, the build rate. Um, so basically, how much material are they putting down? Does what does that effect have on material properties? So maybe they can reduce the ductility or enhance the yield strength or change other uh, material properties by changing the build rate or processing on uh, different parameters within. Um, uh, the additive uh, process. Gotcha. So just a quick recap. Um, while you were talking about the article, I went to one of my favorite websites, okay. Wikipedia Simple English. <laughs> because Wikipedia, a lot of people don't know about Wikipedia Simple English. No. But if, if you need to learn something quick yeah. and need an entry level on something pretty complex, Wikipedia, a lot of people think Wikipedia is where you start. No, 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 no. Because sometimes you'll go to, like, try going to Wikipedia and searching for limited slip differential and try telling me what a limited slip differential, if you don't know already. Sure. And then it's like, that's a little advanced, okay? Like, you can't pick that, but Wikipedia is simple English. Anyway, went to Wikipedia simple English, typed in ductility. Ductility is when a solid material stretches under tensile strain. If ductile 
if ductile, a material may be stretched into a wire. Malleability is a similar property, um, is a material's ability to form under pressure, comprehensive stress. And then it goes down to a little example. Gold has a high has high ductility and malleability, mm -hmm. but lead has a low ductility and high malleability. Yeah. So that corrected me on a thought that I had when you were speaking, because, you know, um, one comparison of ductility and, malle and malleability in, uh, in, in, never mind. I'm not going to go into that. Okay. I'm, 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 I'm a little over my head right now. Um, but anyway, cool. That's awesome. Speaking yeah. of tensile strength. Yes. Um, We've got an article here. Well, I've got an article here about uh, mini sensors. And let me get the full headline for you. Um, it's from metrology.news.com, one of my favorite websites. But CNC tool changes monitored. Um, CNC tools or CNC tool changes monitored with miniature inductive sensors. Awesome. And that's what this article is about, but they have a really cool diagram in this article on where they're placing these miniature sensors. Okay. And it's like in part of the spindle, the, the, the part of the spindle that um, grabs onto the back end of the, uh, the taper tool holder, um, the draw bar right. grabs onto the tool holder, right? And on the, they put these little sensors on the draw bar. Um, well, first off, they're small, so they can fit on that in that really compact tight and tight tolerance area of the machine mm -hmm. um, but the advantage of putting the sensor right there is you can it while it only like measures one metric sure. of how hard it's pulling on to the uh, tool holder from that datum alone mm -hmm. you can deduce a few other data points um during your cut yeah and it's it's really wild um but uh you know it is interesting but, that uh you mentioned that so the back of the tool or you got your retention knob that you the drawbar is pulling on every single time right and it's using a lot of force and it's interesting that uh, it's a replaceable unit so you you know your tapered uh tool holder uh, you can see where you can see most likely that's not going to deform but the retention knob gets so little love in the industry that it's surprising that <laughs> and it's so important right it's it's holding your uh, cutter um basically that's a lifeline to the machine uh it's a small little piece that you know my old fact the old factory i worked at those things were beat to hell those were not in any pleasant condition we would use them for years and years and years we wouldn't serialize them we wouldn't know the number of uses they had or life oh, or anything man. like that is, is like number of uses or hours in operation typically recorded at a manufacturing facility? Uh, you can correlate that. Like that. So you have uh, so there's two uh, options like that. So your uh, uh, index, uh, your uh, ceramic cutters or your uh, cutters in general. Basically, it's mm -hmm. uh, you can measure time and cut. So they're all rated for a certain amount of time and cut for a certain amount of material. Uh, right. That's one way to measure it. But also. Um, the retention knob is uh, can fatigue fail, right? So you're pushing right. on this a certain number of cycles. Everything at some point fails. The question right. is what's your... Uh, if it's a mechanical object, it's, it's going to fail. fail, right? So the mechanism for failure in most cases is fatigue. Um, mechanical device. Yeah, you're not going to... And I've rarely seen it uh, fail because of a single proof load or a single uh, load because the machines aren't designed that way because you're going to um, lock out or... Actually, I don't think I don't think I've ever seen the threads fail in those tapers either, or in the retention oh, knobs. Uh, it's always been in the retention knobs. I think they're designed that the shape is designed that way, so they'll fail in the 
the threads on the retention knob because the retention knob screws into the back of the tool holder. Correct, correct. And the thread is that mechanical locking yeah. connection right. between yep. the the retention knob and the tool holder and the retention knob and the um the draw bar. The draw bar yeah. and the spindle. Yeah. Gotcha. Yep. Well, I can imagine that those saw a lot of wear yeah. because uh, <laughs> you know, even though the pocket NC certainly has not gotten little to any at all uh action on it lately um because we haven't been in the office um i know that they're also not running the ac in the office Mm. which means humid environment and those tool holders for the pocket nc are made out of carbon steel yeah so i can imagine how much rust they have but there's some wear marks on those yeah and as little action as that machine gets that thing has some wear on it so i can only imagine how much wear is on a uh full production facilities right. uh, uh retention knobs yeah definitely uh so wow. the article that i've got the next one is about uh five tips to boost your company's resilience uh, i pulled this from imts's section on supply chain uh, and it's really interesting so you know we mentioned earlier that we're doing supply chain we have a series of supply chain papers that we're researching and writing um and uh, you know, since the pandemic, supply chain has been a big topic. We can't get stuff. And this across the board, right? All industries right. have uh, seen this, uh, partly because, you know, we've shut down factories. So the entire uh, life cycle of pr- production has shut down, not just sourcing goods. Uh, some countries have shut down exporting, things like that. Um, but the article here covers uh, a, f- a series of things that help protect your company or make you more resilient. Uh, And it covers two sides of resiliency, right? So there's the ability to withstand uh, negative influences, but also recover from challenging times. Uh, And the two things that I wanted to bring up was the uh, manufacturing extension partnership set up by NIST. Um, And I think that uh, it's fairly underrated uh, resource. So every state has an MEP and their task is to... um, uh, help manufacturers with business growth, business growth, uh, business improvement, and risk mitigation. Those are their three key pillars. Now, if you, if you look at that carefully, right, it's not talking about technology. It's not talking about um, uh, the stuff to achieve uh, what the business needs are. It's focusing purely on the business from the manufacturer's needs, right? So it could look at increasing your throughput. It could be maybe uh, growing your business in new, new markets, but it's looking at creating a system where it pulls uh, the need to improve your systems in- internally. So I thought that's one underrated use resource that small to medium-sized companies can definitely leverage uh, ongoing basis. And a lot of the MEPs work uh, with the universities also. So it really does create a large ecosystem of working um, and pulling uh, future generations into manufacturing. Right. Um, the second one is securing information systems and connected machinery. So it talks about, um, uh, in the recent news, there have been a lot of ransomware attacks uh, oh, have yeah. been on the rise. Um, and uh, the article talks about uh, a lot of different uh, things. See, have you seen any or heard about any ransomware? Oh, yeah. S- speaking of you know cybersecurity and ransomware, um, Jack Daniels yeah. was just hit by a huge ransomware attack. I like to think Jack Daniels is a manufacturer. <laughs> they are. They are. Yeah, they produce wooden barrels. <laughs> they, well, they produce the barrels, and they also, you know, use a lot of wood to uh, do the charcoal filtration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I actually saw a video of like, you know, when when you hear about like Jack Jack Daniels or any other you know uh, a whiskey company that does some sort of 
charcoal filtration, you expect them to like receive like raw material of like this charcoal that goes into sure. their filters. Right. Or, you know, um, when it comes to bourbons and other whiskeys like Tennessee whiskey, you, uh, you, you think about a lot of the flavor of American whiskey comes from the oak and oh, yeah. specifically the charred oak. And, um, that provides some of the filtration itself, by the yep. way, just in case you didn't know, because they char the inside of the barrel before they fill it up with the white dog, which is the unaged whiskey. Sure. Um, we're getting into a different type of manufacturing right now, but um, <laughs> the I saw kind. a uh, <laughs> delicious. I saw a uh, video of how Jack Daniels was made, and during their charcoal filtration process, when they're setting up their charcoal tr- filtration, I thought they were just going to use like old barrels, like cut up and burn um, old barrels to make their charcoal because right. charcoal's just burnt wood. Right. Um, you know what they use? They don't use the barrels. No. They use the pallets that they that <laughs> the things are shipped in on. And they That's just funny. That. It's like that can't be the best wood. But you know what? Hey, it works. Yeah. They're the successful whiskey company, yeah. not me. Yeah. And can't criticize and them to get the job done. Yeah, but yeah, tell me about they, – they were hit with a uh, ransomware attack. They were. They were. So uh, do you know what ransomware is? So it's the idea that – so in this case, they actually had an external group. So they have, there's two – we'll call them gangs. Uh, the article uh, <laughs> here mentions that they have two gangs that are uh, big into ransomware. And what they do is they lock down certain systems or certain data sets within a company and to uh, release it or uh, unencrypt them. You have to pay them for the key to unencrypt it. Um, you've seen this often on a lot of healthcare in, uh, industries are getting oh. hit, uh, which is kind of sad. But at the same time, there's uh, the the increase of ransomware has gone up quite a bit. And this one looks yeah. like a targeted attack. Uh, so if, if uh, for my like myself, I did not know that uh, Jack Daniels is part of a multi-billion-dollar group, um, and it looks like oh, they're yeah. trying to attack that larger group, trying to uh, siphon money off uh, them. Um, so it has been going on uh, quite a bit. A lot of different uh, penetration points have uh, been brought up. So one thing that I do keep an eye on is the Verizon 20. Uh, let me read this properly. The Verizon uh, Data Breach Investigations Report. Uh, it's really good. So it's free. Definitely recommend you guys check it out or have your IT team check it out. And what they do is they cover a bunch of different sectors. It's like 20, like 2,000 some companies that are uh, part of the survey and they categorize the type of breaches that they had with the different sectors that are uh, those companies involved with. So in summary of all the companies that they've uh, researched, uh, 68% of the breaches were caused by someone outside of the organization. Uh, 83% of the breaches are financially motivated, as in they want to get money for uh, penetrating the systems. I would imagine. I would imagine. You know, cash yep. rules. Forty-two uh, percent of the breaches attack uh, are from web-based applications, and twenty-six percent of the malware incidents can be attributed to ransomware. So, uh, just from wow. those really interesting summaries, you get you a good flavor of where potential threat vectors come from into your company. And if you're a small to medium-sized company, uh, if you lock down your file server for your routers or even your ERP system or simple databases that you're storing or spreadsheets, you know. That's a pretty big problem <laughs> just trying yeah. to access that stuff. So I think uh, that's you know, crazy. A lot of the companies, a lot of people focusing on like the big corporations, Lockheed, Boeing. Yeah, those guys get significantly impacted by uh, these type of attacks. But if you have a scattered attack across, you know, a bunch of different small to medium sized companies, that really, really decimates the uh, economy. Have they said anything about, or is there any information that you have that, um, 
uh, is regarding where a lot of these attacks are coming from? Uh, it does get into it a little bit. Um, okay. Some of it is uh, internal to the U.S. Some of it is external to the U.S. There's okay. always a debate if they're government uh, actors or if they're small gangs or if they're small right. groups, right? Uh, it's kind of hard to trace um, and hard to pinpoint who the exact uh, perpetrator is. Um, but it does get into whether or not they're employee based or outside the uh, employee base or if they're, you know, kind of revenge uh, uh, attacks, things like that. Um, so ben, you've oh, been ahead. on you've been on point with your uh, with your explanations and descriptions, because I've been like following along using uh, simple English. Oh, since, like, I've been matching up. simple English. <laughs> and and yeah, so like to go back to like what is ransomware, yeah. the first sentence is ransomware is a type of malware. And, you know, you, so you got to look up malware, which right. most of us know, but short for malicious software. And it's a kind of software that can be installed on a computer without the approval of the computer's owner, like, like a virus yeah. or spyware, you know, something like that. But specifically, ransomware um, restricts, this is the scary thing, right. restricts access to the computer system that inf that it infects or the data that it stores, often using encryption techniques, yep. and demands a ransom be paid to the creators of the malware. Right. That's that's really scary. That's, that's a tough thing to see. And it, it's tough because if you go through the breach report, you see how they're... Uh, the entry points into the companies. Sometimes it's phishing scams. Sometimes they're targeted attacks on people's social media that they can get in through. Uh, so it's yeah. really interesting. And, and to be honest, a lot of the threats are still basic uh, uh, emails to executives requesting information or links to executives. Um, there still is, you know, the occasional USB drive in the machine or USB drive on the floor that uh, brings sure. in a, a malware. Uh, sure. But all this talk about doom and gloom, you know, there are some... Uh, benefits. So, so the article from IMTS talks about ways to improve your resiliency, specifically around information security. Uh, NIST has a really good article about uh, small business information security, the fundamentals. Um, and this has a really good framework for cybersecurity also. And it rates, uh, it looks at kind of the full spectrum from uh, identifying to prevention. And you can kind of walk through and do some self-assessment to see where you're weak at and where you want to improve mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, and I definitely recommend, uh, you know, educating, uh, being aware of potential threats in the industry and, and not so much about individual articles, but kind of overall industry. There's always the individual threat, right? So I've got tons of data stored here at home for my movies, pictures, all the podcasts we're doing. Uh, I had a, my, one of my servers went down, not to a data thread, just the equipment failed. I lost some data, but most yeah. of that was already backed up online onto a third party site that I was able to recover. So uh, just yeah. keep in mind that, you know, it, it's all about the overall prevention plan or uh, risk mitigation plan for, um, for uh, data breaches. Sure. That's great that they uh, have a, um, a self-assessment for that. Yeah. Kind of like, you know, during this, the times of coronavirus, um, you know, if you Google COVID-19, the first thing that pops up is a self-assessment to determine whether or not you, not necessarily, it can't tell if you have it but right. it can tell you whether or not you should go get tested. Sure, sure. But uh, I think self-assessments are underrated. Agreed. They, they seem a little silly because at, at, at first, because like, you know, anybody could lie on this. Sure. And to, to get the answer that they want to hear. But there's also times where you can get an answer you don't want to hear um, 
that you deduce to yourself without doing a proper self-assessment. Mm-hmm. Like I think Mayo Clinic and WebMD are guilty of these. <laughs> they should have a self-assessment for literally anything. Cause I mean, yeah. you go on Google, Dr. Google and um, type in, Oh, I have a chest pain right in the center <laughs> of my chest and Mayo Clinic and WebMD will be like the first two responses and you click on their links and they're like, go to a doctor right. now, you're going <laughs> to die. And and it's like, okay, slow your roll. Right. What am I going to die from? And can I take a self-assessment yeah. on it? Yeah. Can and I just take some time? They had more, I, I think, you know, websites like those should, should really push self-assessments more often. And I think hopefully this pandemic really pushes it with that, but we're now we're getting into healthcare. I yeah. digress. <laughs> getting back to manufacturing and speaking of social media, you did mention it earlier. Yep. Um, I, uh, one of the, one of the pages that I follow uh, or the accounts that I follow on Instagram, Tom Ford, sure. you know, ultra premium luxury lifestyle company, okay. Des, you know, design, fancy designer company imported, you T- know, tell me what, uh, a couple of things they make. I don't know anything about Tom Ford. Tom Ford does like, uh, th- they do high end fragrances. Okay. Um, they do really good and fancy shoes, um, suits, uh, you, whatever, you know, if it's think of, think of like Gucci or Louis Vuitton, so like that's pay- like Tom Ford, but Tom Ford's a little bit more eclectic where okay. Gucci, like you look at something that's made by Gucci. They have those dumb G's everywhere. Louis sure, Vuitton has sure. the dumb LVs everywhere. Sure. That's stupid grid pattern. Bur- the other luxury brand Burberry, which I think is so basic and disgusting <laughs> has that vomit colored tartan everywhere. Sure. Like that Brown plaid, it's like, how did they become famous on that? It is right. disgusting looking, but I digress. Tom Ford's like that, but sure. they don't have like a look that they go for. Okay. They just, they just have a good style. Tom okay. Ford's a great eclectic brand sure. that, you know, they, they, you can wear, if, if you had to wear just one of those brands, Tom Ford is the safest to wear. Cause you won't look like an utter tool. Sure. Wearing. So they make premium your, wearables. Your will think otherwise, but, but you won't look like a tool. So they make premium wearables that you like. Yeah. I mean, I okay. follow them just sure. to, you know, follow style trends and yeah, whatnot. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. wouldn't, te- you wouldn't tell that by just looking at me, but you know, I do, <laughs> I follow, I try to follow them. Sure. sure. Um, but uh, anyway, on one of their recent uh, Instagram posts, they yep. posted today this picture of some model wearing a, you know, of some long dress sure. and some fancy, probably Tom Ford sunglasses. Sharab happens to wear Tom Ford sunglasses, by the way. I picked them out for him. Our old uh, coworker uh, Sharab saying <laughs> he's back in India now. Yeah. Um, um, but uh, anyway, Tom Ford posts this picture of their model. Uh, wearing a long dress and their fancy sunglasses, but it is in front of this massive Doosan sign. Okay. And I can only imagine the few Doosan employees that are probably <laughs> on Instagram while they should be working are like, dude, look, Tom Ford just like made him tag us. But sure, like, sure. You know, what wh- our brand is on Tom Ford. And they like uh, one of the biggest like uh, uh, designer brands in the industry has recognized us, maybe unintentionally, <laughs> but it's it's cool that like is 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 Doosan the Tom Ford of manufacturing? <laughs> that's an interesting. Anyway, uh, it's it's silly cross industry uh, uh, social media posts. That's really fun, funny. I, I thought it was wild seeing that. You I can't imagine they're super. They have to be super excited to see that. There is a trend in manufacturing that I do like to see like the um, let's see, call it the visual appearance of. Uh, 
machine to, machine tools and uh, mm -hmm. manufacturing equipment where they try to make it um say more rounded more not quite like star trek like in the future where everything's kind of white and clean looking i do like the yeah. kind of uh steps towards that where it's not just a big gray square you know it, it's fine if it's white or any other color um you know it's not just this big block of metal hanging around well designers get often lost in uh form over function right, right and in the manufacturing industry where it's literally about how you're making something yeah function takes you know precedence to form yep and i think it's really cool when companies find a way to make something that is supposed to be purely functional right beautiful Form labs, they have really clean looking <laughs> machines. Sure. There's a lot of companies that like try to go for that Apple look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, There's quite a few companies. Apple, yeah. You know, whatever. Apple, another example of a designer brand. Yeah. They don't make tools, they don't make anything no. useful. It's a designer it's brand. A, it's a designer brand, I agree. Bite me. <laughs> You're going to get some Apple hate mail. I'm going to get so much hate mail. <laughs> mail all your apples to Stephen at uh, amtnews.com. Yeah, if you've got a complaint, <laughs> go to the Apple store and buy a. Uh, an iPhone 11 or whatever, the, make sure it's the pro one, whatever the most expensive iPhone is, write your complaint on the back, carve it in there with a knife and then mail it to uh, 7901 Jones Branch Drive, McLean, Virginia, 22102. Are you done, Steve? Uh, the, when you talk about for, uh, form or, uh, functional reform, uh, the next article uh, uh, is from our own website, AMT News, and they talk about navigating the noise to ensure AM design engineering success. And it's an interesting article. They cover a couple of myths related to additive manufacturing. So, you know, we mentioned uh, the hype that additive stole away from supply oh, chain yeah. and logistics again. There's just a tremendous amount of uh, energy around additive, and right, rightfully so. I mean, there is still a lot of value to be harnessed when we get into full production and interesting designs. But let's take a step back and look at some of the you know, pros and cons of additive. Uh, and it lists three different myths here. One is uh, additive manufacturing is for every company, and every product. That's not correct. That is a myth that uh, can easily be dispelled. It's not for every single product. It's not for every single company. You know, if you're a company built on uh, welding pipes, uh, additive may not be in your um, technology growth. Um, you right. know, if you're a company making small valves, additive may not be in your technology path the question is is this in your technology path and did you assess it it's not a yes no decision and uh you know it gets into a, a couple of other uh, key elements one is material costs are how you control your expenses and that is definitely not true uh, in the article they talk about the project cost is around five percent from material um, so understanding the full cost of an additively grown part um it, that includes, you know, from raw material to growing the part to post-processing, which is probably where a significant part. So, for example, if you're growing the part on a, um, you know, titanium bed, if you're growing a titanium part, you've got a big, thick titanium slab that you've got to cut it from. So you're going to wire EDM it right away, right? So you have the cost of slicing the part. Then you've got to post-process it, machine all your other uh, support structure. There's a lot of post-processing that's required. And that's not yeah. fully considered when someone is looking to get an additive. It's kind of a, a retrospective uh, thought process. Um, and the last uh, one that I mentioned, the last myth is if if you buy it, they will come. So if I buy an additive machine, I'm going to get additive business, which that's not true at all. Um, the additive market is 
it, it's tough. There's a lot of uh, engineering science related to it. And I think that's one of the, that's one of the things that uh, the article talks about is the theoretical information required to produce a good part. Uh, there's still a lot of engineering science behind it that a lot of companies don't have yet. And just to buy a machine and then start growing apart, that doesn't mean you'll get a business right away. Uh, right. And I thought that was a very good you know, message to be uh, portrayed in the industry and to talk about a little bit more that additive is super beneficial. The question is, is it right for your business and is it right for your product growth? So you have two angles to look at as a manufacturer and as a designer, right? Do I want this part to be grown and is that the correct path for it? Yeah. Um, so I thought it was very interesting. So the question is, you know, those are three myths, but how do you move forward? Uh, and it talks about two pathways to look at this going forward. One is understanding your intellectual property, right? Do you have engineering resources that you have fully vested in into a specific process and they've grown that way? Or do you have a broader set of uh, skills and engineering that you can bring in new technologies? Um, and the, of course, you know, beware of the bias, right? So when you look at a metal um, industrial additive machine, you're looking for a million dollars right off the bat. Can you recoup that in your time frame to take a loan for a million dollars? Or, you know, how do you, how do you, uh, positively leverage this new machine for your business or does it become a liability later on? So I thought it was a really good article and, uh, really gives a good perspective on, you know, understanding additive before you jump headfirst into it. Exactly. That's a good point. And, and you know what, I think, I actually think you can, the additive industry, because it's such a new technology and it's a millennial technology, <laughs> if sure. you would, um, I think they could, that industry could probably step back and, and hire some, some boomer salesman, if you would. Because, <laughs> you know, I, I, if, if, what I'm trying to say is, you know, a, a lot of like old school machine tool or, or cutting tool companies even – you know, they don't, they, they don't, they kind of frown upon, you know, just the Amazon approach of just go online, buy a bunch of stuff and return the stuff that didn't work and sure. continue buying the stuff that does work. Right. Instead, you know, they want to send a salesman to you who can bring you that, that, that kit of stuff, but also they don't want to sell you a product. They want to sell you a solution. Correct. Correct. And, and, you know, when I used to hear that all the time uh, in, in this industry, I used to literally, I went to, my mind went to, okay, boomer, whatever. <laughs> Just let me buy a bunch of stuff online and not talk to anybody yeah. and give me what I want and let me figure it out. I feel like now I'm eating my words because sure. I feel like the additive industry could probably use some old school salesmen like that and be like, sure. we're trying to sell solutions, dude. Sure, Additive isn't good for everything. Yeah, and also I think the other way around too. I mean, within your organization, I think having someone uh, reach out and figure out what type of machine is good for the organization to the path that you're looking at too, right? Right. Get some right. Uh, someone that's a little more experienced, or someone that's willing to pick up a call, pick up a phone and call people. Not myself. I don't want to call anyone. I just want to click buy. So someone that's yeah. <laughs> you know willing to spend time and talk to people. I think that's the most beneficial part of uh, kind of the thought process here, Steve. Is that? Yeah. Uh, you need to discuss it more before you buy that million dollar machine. Maybe you don't even need to buy the machine. You just need no, no. as a service, you know? Yeah, that's and, a good point. Cause and in the, in the process of you getting additive as a service, right. um, you may need to talk to a design engineer that you currently don't have uh, employed at your business. Yeah. Yep. Awesome, Steve. Uh, anything else? 
Oh man. No, you're this good. This is heavy. It was heavy. Yeah. This is way heavier than we anticipated. <laughs> we talked a lot of different things from Tom Ford <laughs> to uh, ransomware to uh, pros and cons of an additive. So, uh, and, and if you don't understand anything, we heavily advise that you go to Wiki Simple English to look all of the sweeties <laughs> words up. I'll bookmark that later. <laughs> uh, this episode is sponsored by IMTS. Please check out uh, imts.com slash supply chain for more information about rebuilding supply chain. See, where can they find more info about us? amtnews.org slash subscribe. Get it. Awesome. Bye, everybody. Have a good one. Yep. Bye.